Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. It's good to be back with you this New Year's. I was on vacation last week, and it's good to get refreshed and start thinking about our new sermon series. Very excited to dig into it. So great to see you all. Um, I don't know about you, but man, sickness has been going around, hasn't it? So hopefully we're through that and we're healthy and can, can do life together again. In April of last year, we had a very important congregational meeting to vote on a very big proposal. Uh, the proposal was to approve up to $2.3 million for a building expansion, which would include more space for children's ministry, youth ministry, counseling ministry, and other ministries. Uh, if you were here, you know that motion approved, but you might have also picked up on it simply by all of the construction equipment down on the lower lot. Now, of that $2.3 million, uh, what you may not know is about $80,000 of that goes to pay an architect. And an architect is, is someone who we've been, our guy is great, we love him, but he works with us, he learns what our wants are, what our needs are, uh, he knows the building codes of the state, and he knows how to put all of that together, and so he does a lot of work, and when he's done gathering all of the information, he puts it onto paper into blueprints. Uh, and he gives us the blueprints to get our approvals to make sure we're on the same page and how we want to move forward. He gives it to the city to make sure they're okay with it, but he puts together these blueprints. Now, imagine if our construction company said to us, we decided to ignore the blueprints. We decided to just kind of make it up as we go. You know, we just want to kind of eyeball it. We decided to build a church the way we want to build the church. I know that such a scenario is absolutely absurd, but play along with me. What would you do in such a scenario? My guess is that you would fire the construction company, right? You would say, these are blueprints. These are the ways that it is supposed to be done. You have to follow the blueprints. As you may know, the church is not primarily a steeple. The church is a people. The church is not a building. It is a body of believers. Thankfully, God, who is the architect of his church, has not left us without a blueprint for his church. First Timothy is God's blueprint for the local church, as well as is Second Timothy and Titus, which are called the pastoral epistles. And we know that First Timothy is focused on this, the blueprint of the church, because we have a summary verse of First Timothy in chapter 3 in which it says this. It says, this is Apostle Paul writing, he says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar 
and buttress of the truth. In 1 Timothy, God gives us his blueprint for a faithful local church shaped by the gospel and faithful to the word of God. These blueprints show us how to protect the church, how we are to lead the church. These blueprints show us how we are to love the church, and they remind us continuously of who is the foundation of the church. And so if you would please open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. It is page 991 in the Red Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 1, page 991 in the Red Bible. As we will read here in a minute, the Apostle Paul is the one writing this letter, and he is writing because there are many uh, people creating blueprints for the church that are different than God's blueprints for the church. Uh, There are false teachers infiltrating the church and warping the spiritual structure of the church. And so Paul writes this to remind Timothy and the Ephesian church and us today of God's glorious plans for his church. And so let's look together, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through five. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that we are not left to make up this church thing on our own, that you have spoken to us about how we are to live as your bride together in this community that you have called the church. And we are so thankful for that. May we learn, may we be open, may we be changeable, transformable to conform, Lord, to your blueprints of the church. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you this question. If you were church shopping, what would you look for in a church? Let me speak specifically to our teenage kids here. Uh, There is a day that you'll probably move out of the house, maybe out of Green Bay, although that's less likely in Green Bay than any other city. But there's a chance you'll move out of Green Bay. And the question is, when you move out of Green Bay, what are you going to look for in a church? Are you going to look for a church that has the most captivating preaching, for a church that has the best student ministries, for the church with the best music, or the church with the shortest services? If you went church shopping, what would you be looking for in a church? Let me ask you a second question. What, what about this church? What about Jacob's Well Church? What are you looking for in Jacob's Well Church? How would you like to see Jacob's Well Church grow or change? Maybe you would like a different way of doing music or of spending church money or of how we organize our leadership. You know, over the next few months, as we study God's blueprints for the church, my scary hope and my insecure prayer is that 1 Timothy would change me as a pastor, that it would change you as a congregant, 
that it would change us as a church, both collectively and individually, that, that we may become more and more like the church that God has envisioned. You know, I think Jacob's Well is a great church, so please don't, don't hear what I'm saying. I'm not preaching this because I think we're an awful church. I love this church. My wife loves it. We love this church. We feel so blessed to be a part of this church. I know many of you feel the same way. But with that said, I know we are not a perfect church because we do not have perfect pastors. I know that we have blind spots in the church. I know that we have our cultural compromises in the church. And so if we study this book of 1 Timothy as a church and remain unchanged as a church, we have failed to approach this in a way that God has intended. And I am convinced that if we become more and more like the blueprints God has for his church, we may not become a bigger church, but we will become a holier church, a more faithful church, a more sacrificial church, and a happier church. And so let's start this church building project or this church renovation project together as we dig into the first five verses of 1 Timothy. And as we do this, this today we're, we're basically gonna be laying the foundation, looking at a lot of the backstory and kind of the people that are involved in this book and it will help lay the foundation for the rest of the story of this book. So, so we're gonna ask three questions. The first question is, who wrote this letter? And then we'll ask, to whom was this letter written? And third, why was this letter written? Okay, so who wrote this letter? To whom was it written? And why was this letter written? So first, who wrote this letter? Verse one says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. For those of you who do not know the story of Paul, Paul was formerly called Saul. That was his birth name. Saul was a strict and elite Jewish leader, and because of this, he sought to persecute Christians, followers of Jesus that were drawing people away from Judaism. In fact, when we're first introduced to Saul in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, he is supporting the brutal murder of Stephen, the church's first martyr. We read in Acts 3, it says, that from there Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Could you imagine this? Could you imagine Saul entering into your house and dragging you off to prison? This is a picture of what's going on in the church in China and other places in the world that people are going in and taking Christians and making them disappear, sometimes putting them to death. That's what Saul was doing. But Saul became Paul because God entered his story. We read about this in Acts chapter 9. After Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, he appears to Paul as he is headed to Damascus to persecute the church. In Acts chapter 9, verse 3, it says this. If you could put that on the screen, it says, there we go. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Notice in this passage, Jesus does not say to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting the church? 
He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul had never met Jesus face to face, and yet Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus is so identified with his church that if you mess with the church, you mess with Jesus. Jesus is the head. We are the body. We are Christ. We are the body of Christ. And so he doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As the story goes on, uh, Saul is blinded and he goes into Damascus where a man named Ananias, uh, as commanded by the Lord, lays his hands on Saul, prays for him, and he regains his sight. Saul is so transformed by this that he goes into the Jewish synagogue and starts preaching the gospel with such boldness that they actually seek to put him to death and he escapes outside the window of one of, one of the windows of the wall of the city. Now, something that else is, that is very interesting about this passage is that the Lord is commanding Ananias uh, to go into prayer over Saul because, as it says in Acts 9.15, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. Gentiles is a fancy name for all the non-Jewish people of the world, people like most of us here today. And so Saul, who hated Jesus, became Paul, who loved Jesus. Saul, who persecuted the church, would become Paul, who would propagate the church throughout the Gentile world. And for this reason, God made Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus. And do you notice he leads with this title? Look at verse one again. He says, Paul, an apostle. It's the very first thing he says about himself. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior, not by the will of Paul, but by the command of God, he is an apostle. Apostles of Christ Jesus are those who have encountered the resurrected Jesus and have been commissioned by Jesus with the authority of Jesus to establish the church. And so the apostles are granted the right to record sacred scripture that's why Paul can say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. You see, if the writing of 1 Timothy is simply the writings of Paul, then it is suggestions. But if we accept 1 Timothy for what it really is, the very word of God, then it carries the complete authority over the blueprint of our church. Because God is the ultimate authority over this house, which is his church. You know, I grew up the youngest of five kids, and like most families, uh, us kids, we loved each other and we hated each other just depending on the day, maybe even depending on the minute. But we would have so much fun together, but we'd also bug each other and pester each other and bully each other and things like that. And, and there were several times as the youngest, my older siblings would try to tell me to do something, like to do their chores, right? So they'd say, hey, Dan, go mow the yard, or Dan, go clean up the kitchen, or Dan, go do this, right? And they would tell me to do these things, and I would ignore them because they were just my big brother or big sister. But there were always two words that changed my attitude towards their command. If they said, mom said, or dad said, right? So dad said, go mow the lawn. I'm going to mow the lawn because he is the authority in the household and, and he disciplines me. 
And so I'm going to obey this command. You see, when they add those words, dad said or mom said, then they are merely a conduit of the authority of the household. And so Paul here in this passage says, I am an apostle trying to communicate that this message is not ultimately from him, but it is ultimately from the ultimate authority, which is God who is speaking through him. And so as we ask this question, who wrote this letter, Paul starts this letter claiming he is an apostle of God because Paul wants us to know that this letter is not merely written from him, but from God himself. And that what he is about to say in this letter is God's blueprint for the church. So that's who wrote this letter. God wrote this letter through the apostle Paul. Second question we have is to whom is this letter written? Look at verse two with me. He says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, the apostle Paul had a spectacular conversion experience. It's even called the Damascus Road experience. And we talk about, have you had a Damascus Road experience? Because it is a spectacular conversion experience in which he was a hater and persecutor of Jesus and became a believer and preacher of Jesus. Timothy's conversion was quite different than this. It's what we might call a boring testimony. Timothy wasn't going around persecuting the church like Paul was. Rather, he learned the truths of the gospel in his household. We read this in 2 Timothy chapter 1. It says, I am reminded of, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Most likely what happened was that when Paul went on his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 14, we'll have a map here in a little bit, but he went through Lystra and Derby and proclaimed the gospel and Timothy's grandmother came to faith in Christ and she shared it with her daughter who came to faith in Christ and her daughter shared it with her grandchild Timothy who came to faith in Christ. Friends, a boring testimony is a fantastic testimony. I pray that my kids would have a boring testimony. I pray many of the kids here would have boring testimonies. You don't have to become a drug dealer to have a great testimony of your conversion to faith in Christ. You don't have to. A boring testimony is a great testimony because it is a testimony with less baggage and heartache. And this is a testimony that Timothy had. And so Paul goes, he preaches the gospel, Timothy's grandma, mom, and Timothy come to faith in Christ. And then about four years later, Paul comes back on his second missionary journey. And we read in Acts chapter 16 what happens there. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers uh, at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And so at this time, on Paul's second missionary journey, Paul was probably in his 40s. Timothy was probably in his 20s. And you can see here, I think we have a map up here. This is a picture of Paul's second missionary journey. And so he starts in Jerusalem, and he comes up this way. And then here are uh, Derby and Lystra, the, the cities that are named that Timothy came from. And so Paul picks up Timothy in these areas, and he takes him with him throughout the rest of this missionary journey. 
And as you look at this journey, I know it's tempting to think, oh, this maybe took a few weeks. But Paul spent months at some of these cities proclaiming the gospel. And so during this time, Timothy became his disciple, his protege. And he instructed Timothy and he discipled Timothy during this time. And we see how close they get by how he call, what he calls Timothy in verse 2. He says in verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. It doesn't say to Timothy, a true child in the faith, but my true child in the faith. They had, a, they had as close of a connection that two brothers in Christ can have. As a matter of fact, in Philippians 2.20, Paul says this about Timothy. He says, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth how a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Paul and Timothy had a mentor-mentee relationship filled with love, respect, and trust. And so Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus to pastor, to shepherd that church in that region. We'll talk more about why he left him in Ephesus in a little bit. But what we will learn is that Paul not only is writing this letter to Timothy, he is writing it to a broader audience. You see, the reason, when, when you look at this letter, one of the things that commentaries ask is, why does Paul defend his apostleship? Why does he lead with that at the beginning of this letter if he's writing just to Timothy? Timothy already knows he's an apostle. Well, the reason why Paul leads with his apostleship is it's not just for Timothy, it's also for those in the church in Ephesus and those outside of the church of Ephesus. As we look at verse 3, it says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So if we look at this map again, uh, you can clearly see where Ephesus is. This is a zoomed in. Ephesus is right here, and it, is, um, it, it was, during the time of this writing, it was the major port city for this region of Asia, which is now modern-day Turkey. And so it was the place where, where all of the imports came in and the exports, but it was not only an a place where goods exchanged, it's also where ideas and philosophies were exchanged. It's where, it's where religion was exported throughout the Asian area. And so Paul knew that Ephesus was a strategic location, and so he plants Timothy on Ephesus, not only to have an influence over the city of Ephesus, but over all of that region of Asia. Uh, Ephesus was to Asia kind of like what New York City is to the United States. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, in the book Tipping Point, it shares a story about hush puppies. Do you, I, I don't know if you, hush puppies are those shoes from the 80s. I don't know if you remember those shoes. Uh, but in the early 90s, hush puppies had majorly declined and they were getting ready to end the brand and then something very strange happened. In 1994, someone wore hush puppies to a nightclub in New York City. And then other people saw those hush puppies and thought it was cool, and they started wearing these hush puppy shoes uh, in New York City. And, and pretty soon, it started to spread throughout the country, and in Los Angeles, the other side of the country, a shoe seller put up this 25-foot inflatable uh, mascot of hush puppies and opened up an entire store devoted to hush puppies. And so within one year, this $30 pair of shoes went from the brink of extinction to quadrupling its sales because it all started in New York City. You know, if this hush puppy craze started in Green Bay, it'd probably shut down even faster. 
But, but it started in New York, and New York is such an influential city in the rest of the United States. New York has been called the cultural, financial, media, and entertainment capital of the world. It's the host of United Nations, the Wall Street, and, and several media outlets. It's, it's home of the two most read newspapers in the United States. This is what Ephesus was to all of Asia. And we know that it had such great influence over the church of Asia because when we get to the book of Revelations, do you remember there are seven letters written to seven churches and it's the seven churches of Asia that were planted, much of it because of what God was doing in Ephesus. And so who wrote this letter? God wrote this letter through his apostle Paul. To whom was this letter written? Well, it was written to Timothy, but not only to Timothy, but the church in Ephesus, the churches throughout Asia, and to the church today. Final question, why was this letter written? You know, we've alluded to this a bit, but let's look at verse three again. It says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Why? So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That is, charge them like a military commander. It's the language that's been used here. And teach them not to teach a theology that is different than the Old Testament, than the teachings of Jesus, or the teachings of the apostles. You see, in Timothy's day, just as today, there were a lot of ideas floating around about who God is, what Christianity is, what the church is supposed to look like. People were trusting in their own wisdom instead of in the wisdom of God. And so Paul, once again, is urging Timothy to stay in Ephesus and to continue to fight the good fight and to do the the hard work of confronting false teachings and false teachers. You know, we live in what's called a postmodern world where it is believed that there is no ultimate truth. That what is true for you is true for you. What is true for me is true for me. And the only ultimate truth is that there is no ultimate truth, which means that it disqualifies itself from being an ultimate truth statement. God, through the apostle Paul, is saying, no, there is truth. And because there is truth, there is false beliefs. There are false teachings. There are false doctrines. You know, the great theologian, Francis Schaeffer, puts it this way. He says, there is true truth. There is true truth. And because there is true truth, it is our duty as a church church to charge people to not teach what is contrary to the truth of the gospel or the scriptures. Francis Schaeffer goes on, and, and he is one of the warmest and wisest and smartest theologians and philosophers of the last century. He says this, Truth carries with it confrontation. Truth demands confrontation. Loving confrontation, but confrontation nonetheless. Again, Paul is saying there is true truth, and we are called to defend the truth and to charge teachers within our spheres of influence to stop teaching what is untrue. I've shared this story with you before, but several years ago, when my family was on vacation, whenever we go on vacation, we like to visit various churches uh, in Green Bay, if we're in Green Bay, just to see what God is up to in this community. And we went to a church, and he was preaching on the passage in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy, that your fasting may be seen by others, but when you fast, wash your face, 
that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by the Father who is in secret. And so the point of the passage is very clearly when you fast, don't let other people know about it, right? Do it between you and God. Well, we're there at this church, and the pastor talks about how he was fasting and how difficult his fast was and how hard it was on him and how he was fasting until God would give him $250,000. And then he goes on, and he calls people to trust in Jesus without ever mentioning the sin or, or the cross. And so he's calling people to trust in a lottery Jesus who might give you $250,000 if you fast good enough. Well, after the service, Trish and I walk out and we are literally sick to our stomachs. Like we couldn't even eat lunch. We were so sick to our stomachs. And one of her friends comes up to us and says, wasn't that sermon amazing? And we're thinking, were we listening to the same thing? And so wanting to be faithful to this passage, I, I set up a time to meet with the pastor, and I met with the pastor and got to know him, and it, we had a great conversation, very friendly guy. And, and, and then I started to press in a little bit, and I said, can you help me understand? This passage says not to tell me, and then he told everyone about, can you help me understand that? And, and can you help me, like when you call people trust in Jesus, but you don't mention sin, you don't mention the cross, how does that work? Ultimately, he, he dismissed everything I said, but I wanted to be faithful, to go to him, to love. I don't know if he's a false teacher, but I know that was false teaching because it was contrary to the word of God. Friends, if there is true truth, then there is falsehood. And we are called to address false teaching on primary issues. There are secondary issues, but primary issues for the good of the church, even if, and especially if you hear me or anyone else in this pulpit teaching something contrary to the scripture, please love me enough to come talk to me to ask me questions, to confront me on it. Now, what was the false teaching in Ephesus? Well, I think we get uh, a bit of it here in verse four. Verse four, he says, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, to be honest, we don't know completely what Paul is talking about here, but the best guess is it was some of the Jewish people within the church that were, that were kind of make, filling up the gaps of the Old Testament. So like Adam and Eve's other children, right? And talking about the stories of their other children or Eve's second husband after Adam passed away. Like they're filling in the gaps, making up stories, these fictitious stories, and fixating on them and speculating about them, and really basing a lot of their faith on them. These speculations were fascinating, but they were untrue, and they were distracting people from the truth. To be honest with you, that is why we have to be so careful with modern renderings of the scripture today, especially those that are fictitious. Let me share this one. It might hurt a little bit, just to warn you. You might be offended a little bit, but I have a friend who loves, 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 loves the show The Chosen. Okay, he loves it. Like, if it was a girl, he'd probably marry it. That's how much he loves this show. And he begs me, this is a couple years ago, he begs me to watch it. And so I did. Uh, I agreed to watch the shows, and they are masterfully done. Uh, and they show some very beautiful truths about God. But when I get back to him and he says, what do you think of him? I'm like, oh, that's really beautiful. But you do know it's 1% Bible. Like, you do know that, right? You know it's fictitious. Like, it's, it's, it's historical fiction. It even says that. And, and, and later he comes back to me, he goes, you ruined my Christmas by telling me that. You ruined my Christmas. You know, while shows like this and the producers of it may have had the best of intentions of sharing Jesus with the world, and I'm guessing they do, they seem like people who love Jesus, 
I know many pastors who really dislike this show because this is how people are understanding what the Bible says, and yet it is only 1% Bible. It is a historical uh, fiction that is written. Biblically literate people are illiterate people are watching these movies and deciding their doctrine. It is, it is, it is our duty, Christians, to not have our eyes on a screen, but have our eyes on the Bible. You see, what the Bible says is better than any fictitious story that is on the screen. We must make sure that we are forming our theology on what God's word says and not on fictitious speculations. This means that we must not only say what the Bible says, but we must also keep silent where the Bible keeps silent, or at least not fixate it and decide our doctrine on speculation. You see, the Bible does not tell us everything about God and the story of God's people, but it does tell us the most important things. It tells us everything we need to know about God and the story of God's people. The Bible tells us everything we need to know about salvation and life and godliness, and so we must fixate on what God has told us in his scriptures and not on speculations. You know, it is not fun addressing uh, speculations or false teaching. It's not fun telling people who, who want to marry this episode that it's 1% Bible. It's not fun addressing uh, pastors who are teaching contrary to scripture. There will be times this semester will it probably won't be fun to preach First Timothy because of the ways it will confront our own views of the church. This is not fun. And so why should we do this? Why should we engage in this work of confronting false teaching? Well, Paul tells us here in verse five, he says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul is not charging Timothy to confront false teaching to show why their church is right and every other church is wrong, why they're the best church and all the other churches are bad churches. That's not why he's doing it. He's doing it for this single reason, out of love. You see, love will lead us to tell hard truths, to, confront, to, to confront falsehoods. You, you parents understand this. You know, when we, when we tell our kids, you cannot watch this movie that all the other kids are watching, you don't say that to your kid to get popular with your kids or to get popular with their friends. It has the opposite effect. You say it to them because you love them. You say, we are not going to go this direction. I've confessed this before, but I'm a bit of a conflict avoider because, because I often love relationships more than I love people. I love friendship more than I love my friends. And, and I, I'm so often unwilling to jeopardize that relationship or that friendship because really I love that more than I love the person themselves. You know, there are some people that are con confrontational because they're arrogant and confrontational. But if you want to find people who really love you and don't just love their friendship with you, find people who will challenge you, who will challenge your theology, who will challenge you with the word of God. And likewise, if you are the most non-confrontational person in the world, if everyone loves you all the time, maybe it's not because you love other people, but it's because you love your relationship with those people. There's a good chance that the reason why you have never uh, you've never lost a friend over sharing hard truths is because you have loved yourself more than you have loved them. So why was this letter written? Well, this letter was written because God loves his people, God loves his church, 
And God calls us to do the same. And one way we love God's people and the church is by humbly, gently, courageously, and lovingly challenging speculations and false teaching in the church and leading them to the ultimate truth, the truth of the gospel. Let me end with this. On, on Christmas break, I, uh, I was able to go play basketball at the YMCA, which I love to do. Uh, many of you know I've had some nerve pain, so I haven't been able to do it for six months. I know many of you have been praying for me. Thank you for doing that. Uh, it was a joy to go back to the Y and play basketball. And I was there one day in the afternoon, and one of the guys uh, had, a, had a big cross tattoo. I won't say where it was because I don't want to I don't want you to identify this person, but they had this huge cross tattoo. And so after the game, I asked him, I said, do you go to church anywhere? And he said to me, you know, um, my ex-wife and my kids, they want me to go to church, but I just have other things I, I want to do, I need to do. You know, I'd, I'd rather come here to the Y and, and work out. And so then I went on to ask him, I said, well, would you consider yourself a Christian? And he said, yeah, I consider myself a Christian. So, well, what, what makes you a Christian? And he says, well, you know, I, I try to be a good person. I try to make the most of life. Uh, I try to follow the values that my parents have given to me. And that's what makes me a Christian. And I said, well, that's not what the Bible says. As a matter of fact, what you just said is every religion but Christianity. You see, in every religion, it's what you do for God. But in Christianity, it's what God has done for you. Friends, this is the greatest, most pervasive false teaching throughout the world and throughout the Church of America today, that it's what we do for God. It's our goodness that earns us a relationship with God. This is the greatest false teaching. And so I pressed into it a little bit. And I said, listen, Christianity is far different than that. It's not what you do for God, but it's what God has done for you. If you trust in Jesus that, that he took on your sin and died for on the cross and rose on the third day to give you newness of life, trusting and believing in that is what makes one a Christian. And then I said to him, listen, I am not good enough to make it in any other religion. That's why I'm a Christian, because I couldn't make it in any other religion, because I know how sinful I am. He says, well, why do you think you're so sinful? I'm like, from experience, by my thoughts, by my words, by my deeds, by what I do, by what I don't do, I couldn't make it in any other religion. And that's why I'm a Christian. I had to wrap up and go, and, and so I said, hey, thanks for the conversation, and I left, and as I'm driving home, I'm thinking to myself, man, maybe I was too aggressive, maybe I was too harsh, you know, I should have asked more questions, I should have listened better, and, and then I thought of, of, a, of a quote that my friend Ron uh, reminds me of frequently, which is that anything worth doing is worth doing poorly, right? <laughs> anything worth doing is worth doing poorly, and so after I got done beating myself up, I, a few days later, I went back to the YMCA, and I saw this guy again, and he comes straight at me. I'm like, is he going to beat me up? I don't know what's going on. Um, but he comes towards me like, hey, man, how's it going? How's, your, how's New Year's? How's this? And, and we started talking like we were friends, which was crazy. We didn't get into spiritual things, but, but we were talking. So I'm praying for this guy, praying the Lord puts him in my path again and that we can talk more. But, but here's the thing. As I think about 2023, one of my hopes is that I would poorly share the gospel more frequently with more people than any year before. That I would poorly confront false teaching this year more frequently than I ever have done before. Because you know what? The best gospel is God's gospel. That is the gospel truth. That, that Jesus 
saves us, not because of what we do, but because what God has done on our behalf. And so, church, this is the foundation that God gives to us, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ himself, who is the head of the church, of which we are the body. And so my prayer for us is that we would grow, that we would grow, and that we would do these things poorly, and that we'd get better at them, that we'd get less poor at them, but that we would be a faithful church for our good, our happiness, the salvation of the community around us, and of course, the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for First Timothy. Uh, confess that in my own arrogance, I wanna do things my way. Uh, I want the church to look how I want the church to look, and yet, yet your ways are not my ways. Your ways are so much better than my ways, God. I pray that as we look at the book of 1 Timothy, that we would not just sit critiquing other people in the church, but that we would critique ourselves, that we would be convicted, that we would become better men and women of the church, uh, and that we would love the church as you love the church, for she is your bride. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.